Welcome to the Phoenix Cast, a podcast about cybersecurity, technology, and innovation issues in the military. We are your hosts, John and Kyle. I'm a U.S. Marine, and the opinions expressed on the cast are my own, not official military policy. And the opinions expressed by me are my own, not those of my employer or any other businesses I happen to be associated with. For today's episode, we're joined by special guest Aaron Swain. Aaron, thanks so much for coming on the cast. Can you give us a quick intro? Uh, yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm Aaron. I am the uh, Director of Digital Transformation for uh, VMware Tanzu's public sector business. And Aaron, you had a little bit of experience in service, is that correct? Uh, yeah, just a little bit. Um, I've been in the military for about 21 and a half years, um, retired three years ago out of the U.S. Army. Um, so just a little bit. And your occupational specialty before getting out? Uh, yeah. So uh, the first part of my career, about 10, 12 years, I was in the infantry. So, you know, run around the woods, uh, leading soldiers, you know, training Afghanistan, train Afghanistan multiple times. About midway in my career, uh, I actually pressed the wrong button, I think, when they said that you had to, like, you know, pick a functional area. Um, and the functional area I chose was operations so I thought I was, thought I picked, and it was actually operations research. So uh, I did retire as an operations researcher, uh, otherwise known as you know data scientist. A lot of different kind of functional areas you can do within operations research, but I try to answer interesting questions with uh, with data. And so, as you were kind of learning to answer interesting questions with data, was there anything you kind of felt, hey, I need to pursue this, and that led you kind of out of uniform and into a civilian shot? Or was this kind of one of those things of you're there on a Thursday and it's like, hey, surprise, look at what just fell in my lap? Um, <laughs> interesting question. I'd, I'd say the last part of my career... Um, I found myself at an organization called the Joint Special Operations Command. There was this kind of like huge, like I guess like data revolution going on. Um, and so JSOC was like, hey, we have all this data. We should probably make better use of it. Uh, and what do they do? They hire a couple data scientists. So me and a, another friend of mine got hired over there for a few years. And uh, we started kind of waiting around in all this data that, that, that JSOC had. That That is a pretty crazy transition to go from infantry to kind of accidentally a data science to scientist to operationalizing data at uh, JSOC. So I, I think we'll get a little bit more into what that experience looks like. Um, but currently you are sitting as the director of digital transformation for VMware's modern apps biz. Uh, what does a director of digital transformation actually do and kind of like what's the target audience and responsibilities of that title <laughs> uh yeah i like to say whatever i want to do but that's not always always the case um so i guess in my role i get to work I, i'm i'm client facing i guess so i, I work very a ton with our our, our clients within uh, the dod space the intel space um federal civilian organizations and now just recently we started working with folks state local in education, uh, so in my role, I get to, you know, all the all the way from hi, nice to meet you, potential client, to hey, we got a huge engagement going. Uh, you know, services strategy. Uh, we build you know apps with folks, and we deploy platforms with people, um, and so kind of how those two work in hand to hand to generate, you know, what, what we like to call like business outcomes for and uh, and with our clients. So, Aaron, I want to do a quick check on technology here with you, too. You've mentioned Tanzu, and then the official job title is in the modern apps business. But, you know, for the average listener who may not understand what Tanzu is, can you give us a quick little brief on, on what that tech stack is and why it matters? Yeah, absolutely. T Tanzu, I guess, it's, it's, a, it's a business unit. Um, you know, when you, when, you, when, you get, when you get down to it, uh, within the business, you know, we, you know, we sell software and we sell services. Um, about three years ago, uh, the world kind of settled on this technology called Kubernetes. Um, and so VMware, you know, data center business, um, kind of work from anywhere business, kind of looked, looked ahead at how, how do we leverage this technology as our clients are moving to the cloud, um, kind of around that technology called Kubernetes. And so they made a few key acquisitions. Uh, one was called Pivotal Labs, uh, which is where I worked. Um, another company called Bitnami and a company called Heptio. And so as they did that, they kind of brought us all together, made us one 
uh, business unit. Um, some of our R&D shifted quite a bit. Um, and so, you know, what we build and sell is, uh, you know, cloud-native platforms that, that run anywhere on-prem in the cloud. Uh, and then also we have our services arm where we actually, you know, we pair kind of one-on-one with the clients and we build apps and I'd like to say new incredible ways, but it's not really new incredible ways. It's just like, uh, you know, everything we do is like optimize for building software. And so we like to pull clients out of their kind of their, their doldrums sometimes out of their cubicles. And we bring them, bring them to us at least before COVID, you know, we'd actually take folks out of their work and they'd come to one of our labs uh, for six months. And we, you know, we, we, we build real software uh, with the end state of that software, you know, getting into production, getting accredited, getting continuously accredited, accredited, uh, getting adopted by users, and then actually, you know, changing how our clients kind of do business. So, you know, our, our services are, are really differentiating. I, I like to I like to think there's not a whole lot of folks that actually do this, uh, and then pair, you know, technology and and the services arm together. I have so many questions for you, but before I do that, I want to start with a training timeout. Kyle, I know we have mentioned this on the cast before, but so that this can kind of stand alone, can you give the audience a quick 30-second TLDR on what Kubernetes is and what problem that looked to solve? Yes. And for anyone listening who has a deep understanding of Kubernetes, remember that trying to summarize this in like 60 seconds is hard, so I'm going to oversimplify. I give you nothing but the softballs. Yes. In the beginning, there were bare metal servers, which meant CPUs and RAM and disks all were owned by one operating system. And then someone said, haha, we should make a hypervisor, which allows me to slice up CPUs and RAMs and disk spaces and say, now this is going to be running on multiple operating systems at a given time. So that way you have less waste. And then someone said, well, wait, what if we abstract that so that we can have pools of CPUs and pools of RAM and pools of disks that can go into place? And we started to think about containers. Containers allow you to break apart distinct elements of operating systems, applications, configurations, file structures, you kind of name it, and you stack those on top of each other so that you can efficiently run them and they turn on and turn off really quickly. You don't have to go troubleshooting and chasing layers of different problems with like drivers and crap like that. And then Kubernetes came along and again, this is like massive oversimplification to allow a consistent orchestration layer for containerized applications, regardless of the hardware, cloud platform or SaaS provider you're going to run that on. And just to do some checking with you know the current technology we're talking about here, Kubernetes and Pivotal Cloud Foundry and Tanzu are kind of like these things that have all sort of come along at the same time and do similar but not perfectly feature-matched things. And so Kubernetes allows you to do really neat stuff. I love Kubernetes. Use it for containers. Thumbs up. Excellent. Kyle, thank you so much for doing that. And I am really excited about getting into talking about kind of software and Aaron, what you've done there. Uh, but before I do that, I want I want to do a little bit more on digital transformation because I, I believe uh, <laughs> maybe, maybe there's not a uh, industry recognized term for exactly what this is. Like you can look up what zero trust is and you've got a general mantra and you can kind of apply it against and whatever. I'm not sure we have the same for digital transformation. So for for the listeners that are looking to kind of bring that on, or maybe if they're going to transition and do this, I'm interested how much of your job kind of like came as a billet description, like thou shall blank and blank and blank and blank. And that is digital transformation? Or is this one of those things of like, hey, the customer needs to get from where we are today, status quo, to whatever it is that we think innovation and transformation looks like. Innovation at a scale that is large enough to be considered transformation, I suppose. Uh, How much is that spelled out for you and how much is kind of in your wiggle room? Uh, So I, I created the role within my business unit. My boss and I got together one day and we said, hey, uh, we need a title for y'all, and he came up with Director of Digital Transformation, and we kind of paired and wrote what it is I did. Um, so I guess there there was not like a, a job wreck that said, hey, go apply to be the Director of Digital Transformation. Um, it kind of grew within within our, within our business unit as we started to really scale out our business and worked with you know larger, uh, more enterprise clients and within the DOD and the Intel community. Okay. And just so I'm not crazy, there's not an industry recognized definition for digital transformation, is there? I don't believe there is. Okay. I, excellent. 
I will tell you from my direct perspective as well that there is absolutely not. The director of digital transformation at my company reports to me, and this is a constant struggle that we have with everybody that we talk to inside and outside of our business. The way that Google defines it, Azure defines it, or Microsoft, Amazon defines it versus every other company on the planet. The only consistent I'd see, and Aaron, I want your opinion on this, is that it's basically digital transformation is the thing that companies need when they realize how monumental their tech debt is and they know that they've got to do something about it. That's the only like overarching definition I can say of what a digital transformation is. It is a like bulldozer towards tech debt is the intent. Um, but I got to imagine as a director of digital transformation, your job spans across a thousand industries and verticals and experiences and, and hardware stacks and all the things on the planet. Um, yeah, it does. I like, I like to think of it as, you know, the world we live in is, is, is digital. You know, think about, you know, I think about when I, geez, I went to, so I went to school at the United States Military Academy. I actually almost became a Marine, but that's another story. Um, I remember there being like an icon on my, on my computer. It was like Netscape. Like my first year at West Point, I never clicked on that icon. It was absolutely crazy. Second year, I, I clicked on it. It was like, oh my God, there is an internet. Um, and then there was probably a Marine Corps PR campaign somewhere in there. <laughs> uh, yeah, probably. But like th the world has shifted from, from, from back then, you know, when the internet was just, was just coming out to, you know, big things like, like the iPhone, the cloud, um, you know, everything you, you do nowadays, it's, it, it's, it's all digital. You know, I think of my, my children walking around nowadays and they, they carry Chromebooks around school and they use Google work workspace and they're married to their telephones. Um, it's, it's, it like the world has absolutely shifted. Uh, and the DOD is, is, is no different. You know, I can remember, you know, in the army, in the, in the early days of, you know, not having anything but a, but a radio to like this big hard computer that was in front of my vehicle. I used to bang my head into uh, when my driver stopped short to, literally when I left service was and just to get a person to a place in the world to do something, it's, it's, it's all digital. There's, there's apps, there's software, there's networks. Um, it's, it's where, it's where businesses compete. It's where our DOD and our services compete. Um, you know, folks need to need to look at it as not a back office function, but as business critical, uh, you know, companies that have, have recognized that and put their CIOs and CISOs and software, you know, development arms right at the boardroom table with their C-suite are, are, are ones that are rising to the top. You know, folks that keep them in the back office, uh, they're not around anymore. So kind of in that vein of, hey, it's all going digital. And I, I think the, the connector there is, is. The, the value of your software can sometimes dictate the value of your effectiveness. You've worked inside of software factories before. Can you talk to us a little bit about what your experience there was? Uh, yeah, totally. So you know, I don't think it's any, I think it most, most folks know that, you know, between Pivotal Labs and now Tanzu Labs, we've been behind some of the largest uh, software factories within the, within the DOD. Um, you know, I guess I, I could say I started my own software factory, even though it wasn't really called software factory when I was when I was doing it, which was basically how do we look at kind of insourcing, understanding how to build software that like moves the needle on the mission, but do it in times that rival, you know, silicon startups. Um, when I first you know joined the joint special operations Command. it was just me I was, I was this lone kind of data scientist and i could do a bunch of things but you know i couldn't scale myself uh, and so looking around at what the other services were doing i ran into this small little effort up in boston that was working over we work um and it you know eventually became called castle run i was like oh my god like there's these airmen that are learning how to build software just like you just like you do when you you know walk the halls of google or Twitter, uh, it was it was just absolutely amazing. So, you know, looking at that as being a way to kind of scale out what I could do as a data scientist, I started you know teaching, educating, building software with uniform folks within 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 JSOC. You know, I I entered as like a, a, a an ORSA of one. You know, when I left, you know, I think I had 50, 60 folks all building software in this you know, this, this new kind of crazy way that 
JSOC hadn't seen before. Uh, when I, you know, right when I was leaving, we kind of we call it like the global analytics platform. Um, and yeah, I think it was one of the one of the very first kind of DoD software factories. And you mentioned kind of insourcing or essentially getting together a baseline of, of what made you successful or what, what you thought drove towards success and bringing people in. Can you talk to me a little bit about those people? Did you bring in only uniformed service members? Did you bring in uniformed and, uh, you know, active duty civilians, contractors? What did the mix there look like? And that w- was that kind of a deliberate choice or was that more of a like, here's what I was given and I'm going to work with this? Yeah, the, the, I don't think there was a deliberate choice anywhere. It was it was a mix, an absolute mix. Uh, but we had folks in uniform, we had government civilians, we had contract partners, um, basically anyone who raised their hand uh, and wanted to you know focus their skills on the mission with software kind of kind of came to be. Um, unfortunately, you know, I, I, my biggest problem was like I couldn't scale it. You know, the billets uh, is probably the hardest thing. You know. Finding a face, finding someone with the aptitude to learn is, is very easy. It's it, it, it's all over the services. Um, you know, if you look at what the army is army is doing with the army software factory, they have nothing. There is no dearth of uh, folks volunteering to, to to join the army software factory. Um, and I didn't have that. hadn't had that problem either when I was in uniform at JSOC. The problem is is, is billets. You know, billets in the in the services are a lot like gold. Um, very hard to kind of change what the force structure looks like um and so that that, that I, I i always i always i, I couldn't scale is, is my biggest problem you know what's funny is uh general miller uh, the commander of jsoc when i was there eventually went over to afghanistan to shut the effort down there and is now retired you know looked at what we were doing he says aaron like not only do you need to do this at scale but it's, it's like a mission imperative um, and so that kind of helped me unlock the faces. Uh, we were able to find the people easy. They raised their hand. We can pull them in, but you know, over time we started losing them because we never, we never had those, those billets that are so, so important. And kind of as the, if you could for a day be the emperor of billets and, and wave a wand, what do you think right looks like there? Cause one of the things that I'm struggling with a little bit is we say, Hey, we got the people, we train the people, but then we need the people, uh, for longer, I think is the assumption there. Uh, what's that look like as far as moving forward after a couple of years? Because I can't imagine you want to take these super talented people and then leave them in the baseline kind of billet for the next 15 years to make sure we have stability. So do we know kind of what a general preferred paradigm might look like? I think first off, I'd, I'd- I'd say at least a fifth of every service should be focused on digital technology. Um, you know, folks, that, that, that's probably, I think, bold. And it's, you know, it'll end up being much, much smaller than that. But just, just if you look at the world we live in, the world we, we fight on, it's, it's all digital. Um, I think depending who is listening to this, they think it's bold. Either half of them probably think it's bold in you have asked for way too many people and the other half are like, 20 sounds like a low number. Yeah, and this is coming from, you know, a previous infantry commander who used to slog it out in the mountains of Afghanistan. Um, the point is never have to get even have to get get to the mountain in Afghanistan. And when you do, you need to optimize that war for the use of software. Um, and the only way to do it is to understand how it's built. And I'm not saying that the, the services need to, need to insource all their software development. You know, absolutely not. Uh, there's, there's great tech out there in industry uh, there's great talent out there in, in industry, but the government needs to understand what good software looks like and how good software is built, because then they, they can better partner with industry to to, to get that software. Okay, uh, so we talked a little bit about the people uh, on the kind of the good hardware, and you said kind of like how it's built and what it looks like. Are there any myths you might want to dispel here as far as the, the non-people part of this? Call it the widgets, call it the supporting applications or whatever. Anything you'd like to talk through, especially with your time in software factories and, and now in VMware kind of mo- putting this so that we can do it on-prem as well. Uh, what are your thoughts there? Um, myths. Jeez. That's not easy, I guess, the, is the first one. Everyone thinks that, you know, you can go grab 
uh, a really talented developer, you know, you know hype him up on, uh, on caffeine, stick him in his, stick him in his garage over the weekend and he can produce, you know, world-class, world-class software. You just need to get better talent. Uh, it's, it's, it's not easy. It's, it's, it's like any kind of business problem. Um, it's like, you know, wading through the muck some days. Uh, but, you know, it, it takes folks to understand how to, how to kind of how to, how to get around and get through that stuff. Uh, it takes strong guidance from the top saying, like, this is what we're going to do and, like, pointing to the, to the mountain and then you know, the organization kind of getting behind that and doing it. Uh, there's never, like, one big bang kind of release of, oh, my God, there's, like, the greatest software in the world. It's always in these, like, little increments uh, over time where you, if you're doing it right, you kind of sit back and you're like, oh, yeah, they're, 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 going, the right, they're going the right way. Um, if you build that way in these little increments – you know, you're going to fail a ton, but you're not like going to fall off the mountain or fall on the fall off the cliff. You're just going to take a couple steps back, you know, re- regather yourself and go up a little different way up the mountain. So what you're, what I hear you saying is that we should take work and break it down into the smallest imaginable chunk that will be able to achieve value. <laughs> yeah. Which sounds kind of crazy in the DOD, right? If you, I was literally going to ask that exact question. Like, <laughs> oh man. You know, it, Aaron, given your experience, right, like founding member of Castle and all of that, like I, I want to hear your experience on this. And like, how do you convince the DOD that that is a good idea? I feel like if I go into the outside world in the civilian sector and I tell someone that they go, you're just, you're just talking about agile. Like, what, what are we talking about here? They, they look at me like a monkey with a math problem to some extent. But I feel inside the DOD, you know, they're like, when is this software going to launch and when is it done? You know? Yeah, I first want to say, like, I can't tell you how many three and four star generals are like, hey, go get me cloud. And what's the first yeah. thing that happens? Is some, act, some action officer is going to pull down a PowerPoint presentation and like start building a plan. Uh, and that plan will take years and years and years. And you got to get everyone on board. You got everyone to agree. And it's like when you first like go buy your first little piece of cloud, it's like, hey, the plan just changed. Um, you know, the, first, the first thing is the DOD, they, they want to plan. They want to build these like huge monumental, monumental, huge, huge plans, um, which is crazy. Cause like, you know, when the bullets start f- flying, like the plan goes out the window and you literally, you know, you, yep. you, 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 you act. Hopefully act by enabling software. Um, so you, you mentioned real quickly though, uh, that you said acquisitions. And I think this is somewhat at the heart of it. And we, we talked about as we were prepping for this show, this is how the military model is set up. If a general says, I need a thing, the proper way to make that happen is to get this, you know, specifically written as a requirement, get funding placed against it, and then acquisitions goes and sadly, the kind of the way this works is goes and buys a thing. Um, and what that kind of doesn't entail, and when Brigadier General Pasagian came on the cast and kind of talked about this. He said, hey, we have tankers and artillery men that come in and essentially QC what we're doing so it's not crazy. Um, But he was kind of talking onesies and twosies. So do you have any thoughts on how we can work within the military model of you've got a whole acquisitions team that does this thing? And in general, to satisfy a requirement, we buy a thing or we buy people. Um, and I think I hear you saying you need to heavily invest from the operational side of things. Any insight there? Yeah. First off, I'd say the acquisitions community absolutely needs to be involved. You know, they're the ones kind of charged uh, with the authority to to go get, build, create uh, cool things. Uh, they have the money, the funding. A lot of time, they have the authority. It's just got they just have to do it differently. Uh, you know, from I've seen a study of that. You know, once the requirement is like signed off, you know, don't even forget all the, all the requirements analysis that needs to happen. But once a requirement is signed off for a piece of software, to the time it's like delivered, it's eight to ten years in the DoD for a major software program. Eight to ten years. Think of the software, think of the technology you used ten years ago. Uh, I saw another study that said for major software acquisition programs in the DoD, uh, there is a single digit chance for success. Uh, and that's like, you know, on time, under budget, and actually delivered what the re- requirement was. So eight to 10 years, single digit chance of success. I think I'd be doing something differently nowadays. 
and I, I would just say to a certain degree, it sounds terrible when you're listening at home eight to 10 years, but when you break down the cycle of how we identify issues, validate requirements, funding, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, that is not a mistake. That is somewhat by design. Uh, you can argue whether that's a good thing or a bad thing, um, but that's not an accidental thing. You, I, could, I can show you a piece of paper that says why it takes that long. Yeah, a lot of times, folks, you're contracting out to go build that thing for you. Don't you have a team behind them? It's literally a person capturing the contract. You know, writing down what he's what they're going to do, how great they are. Once they win the award, then they go like, "Oh, we got to go hire a team to go do this." Um, you know, yes, talented folks are absolutely part of building good software, but so is process, culture, technology. Uh, there, there's so much more to. To, to build a piece of software that's going to change change the world and just write a response to a contract. And I mean, how many different people are you going to have in that role across eight to 10 years? How many different humans are going to rotate into and out of that position and, and maintain continuity over the development of that piece of software or that piece of hardware? That's always the piece that w- within the DoD that gets a little bit nuts. Like there's a non-zero chance and, and probably closer to a more certain chance that in a large organization, when someone is building something from scratch, that they may stay around for a long time to see it through because they have an ownership stake in that sort of thing, right? But in the DOD, there is a literal 0% chance that the same human is going to be driving that or that the tribal knowledge is going to be understood. I'd, I'd argue that you've probably gone through three or four program executive agents in that entire that entire time. Yeah. That is a lot of leadership movement. Yes. So speaking, speaking of leadership, because Aaron, I kind of want to hit on this one a little bit too. So as you're, we, we've defined that you're working with teams to write good software that hopefully are going to change what we're able to do on the battlefield. So you have in your mind and through your experience, a general idea of some things that need to happen. And then you've got kind of what the customer thinks they want. And we were prepping for the cast and you mentioned the, I believe it was the Ford quote of, if I just listen to my customers, then I'd build a really fast horse. So how do you balance between giving your customers, clients, service members, what, however you want to term them, giving them what they tell you that they need, and then also somewhat giving them what you know they need from experience as well? And, and how do you manage that? Is that the thing that remains unsaid? Is it a very deliberate conversation? I'm just interested how you approach that. Yeah, what's funny, I think the three years of being in this role um, and probably the hundreds of teams, client teams I worked with, not a single case uh, did we build what the client came in to said, that's what I need. Um, which is also, you know, very, very different than how software is typically acquired in the DOD. Um yeah, your acquisitions report card, I think, would be fairly poor. <laughs> yeah, like when, when I'm talking to a, a client executive that's getting ready to do some work with us, I, I say, hey, define what the outcome is. Um, don't define what, what the tech stack is or what every little button needs to do. Like define what the outcome is. Point us at a zip code. Don't, don't, don't point us at, at, at a single answer. Um, you know, we, we do it ton of, of user research up front, very, very, very quickly, um, very in-depth user research. And that helps define uh, where it is we're going to build first. Um, you know, when we build software and even our, our, our platform teams, they're, they're, they're balanced. So there's all kinds of disciplines on each team from a product manager to a designer uh, to engineers um, to, you know, data folks. But the idea is that, you know, should you understand what what outcome the stakeholder wants, and you and you balance that with what the user is asking for, you, you're going you're to build something uh, in between that's really going to that's going to get adopted. It's going to move the move the needle on the mission, and then everyone's going to go home happy. So if I am a client right now and I'm about to go to a software factory or something like that, I'm going to ask for some software to be written, or I want to write some software. Can you give me any, other than obviously like start with the outcome, can you give me any lessons learned from kind of the good and the bad that you've seen that might make me a better customer and therefore 
get me to solve my ends a little bit more strongly. Or I guess we could say this another way. What do you wish every customer came to the initial meeting with? Uh, yeah, absolutely. I, I'd say the, the biggest thing is a desire to learn. Um, be open up, be open to do things differently. Um, you know, and, and- we're, 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 we're teachers. We'd, we'd, we'd like to, we'd like to enable folks. We'd like to hand off, you know, our practices to people and our, our clients, they, they need to, they need to want to receive that. So it's, I think it's a desire to learn. And the second one is, is, is user empathy. Um, you know, and we, we kind of help, you know, pick folks we want to, we want to work with. And some clients let us help pick the right people is, is, you know, potential to learn and then empathy, be able to put yourself in someone else's shoes and actually want to solve that problem for you. Those are the two, two biggest attributes of, of anyone on our software team. So let me ask a follow-up question then to Aaron. When we talk about the user empathy and sort of taking what your stakeholder wants, setting the, I always call it the compass heading, right? Like, don't, don't show me the navigational chart. Just tell me what direction you want us to generally go in. And then we'll figure out what the user wants and figure out what the solution is going to be. Um, what would you say to the average person inside the DOD today that's trying to get something like this going? <laughs> uh, like you're, you're in the, the very long elevator ride, but an elevator ride nonetheless, which will, you know, is, is by the second dwindling. Like, what is the thing that you tell them? Uh, number one is I'd, I'd probably say it's a, it's a, it's a mission imperative. Um, all, 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 all the services are, are, are headed this direction. Um, and it, take strong leadership from the top to, to change. Uh, you know, folks staff things for, for, for many, many years. Um, but you gotta, you gotta, you just, you just need to get going. And, and the hardest thing is it's like taking that very first step. Uh, you know, folks want to, you want to want to plan. They want to line up all the funding. They want to put this glorious thing in, 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 into action. Um, and so, you know, strong leadership guidance from the top and then just taking that very first step. Uh, to get something done. So transitioning ever so slightly, one of the things that's kind of near and dear to my, my, my heart, and we talked about this a little bit in prepping, but I've also seen this all over LinkedIn as well. There's very much a CATO versus CRMF discussion. And before we get into that, that is continuous authority to operate, which means you need to do some paperwork before you are allowed to put software online in the DOD. So your ability to do that is called an ATO. And a CATO is instead of either every time you change the software or at every given interval, you having to do this paperwork all again, which by the way, is a emotional event. The C in CATO stands for continuous, meaning you put certain mechanisms in place so that you don't need to quote, redo the questionnaire. Um, And then CRMF is essentially saying the continuous thing is not actually the ATO. The continuous thing is the risk management framework. So Aaron, I know you're passionate about this. Uh, number one, are you team CATO or CRMF? And what does this mean to you? <laughs> uh, it, it's funny. And I think that, you know, a lot of this work came out of our early, early work with, with Kelso Run when, uh, kind of Lauren Knossberger termed, hey, we're going to do continuous ATO. And so this whole CATO thing came out and it was actually, you know, a good friend of mine who was the en- the anchor engineer in that first application for Kelsarum, which was like, hey, how do I get to production? Um, and then like all the compliance folks would come out and they say, hey, you got to do these scans, these tests, you do these controls. And he was like, well, can I just, you know, use that automated scanner, that automated tester and put it in my pipeline so I know the answers before I need to actually go get graded? Um, and that's what they did. And so, you know, the first kind of like, you know, DevSecOps pipeline, pipeline was kind of built for the DOD. Uh, and then the, the compliance folks uh, came out, the ISOs, the ISMs, and were like, hey, on, we have all these controls. You know, for the app dev stick, there's like 385 or something controls that you need to meet to go to production. And so then we were like, well, hold on. If we're going to use the cloud, we're going to use this platform thing. Uh, doesn't that take care of like, you know, 85% of those controls? And they're like, yeah, totally. Just write some words and, and show us that. And so we, we did that. And then for every, you know, app that followed the first one, it was like, hey, all we have is these couple, you know, less than 30 controls we need to, we need to meet. And you know what? 
we know exactly what they are, so we can do it up front instead of waiting to the very end. Uh, and so I think that continuous ATO was kind of was kind of coined. Um, and from that, you know, we still kind of battled a lot with the government compliance folks. Uh, and so what we started to do is change the, change the name a little bit. Um, you know, RMF is, is 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 a good thing. It's you know, they're not there's tons of different different industries, and the DoD is only one that actually has you know a standard for how you kind of do compliance uh, for software. And it's, it's it's a good thing. And so what we did is we we kind of changed a lot of the names uh, around the RMF process. And so what we did we did is say, hey, we're going to get to the end, and we're not just going to stop. We're gonna, we're gonna, we're going to keep going. And so we just kept going over and over again. Um, you know, as, just as fast as teams want to deploy software to production. Uh, sometimes months, sometimes weeks, sometimes days. Uh, so we would, you know, pretty much do the entire RMF process within that cycle of deploying new code to to production. And do you have anything currently, any current pet peeves, or or maybe think of it as a current bar you'd like to to hurdle as far as CRMF is concerned? Like, what's what's the next ridge line we're shooting for, or next problem to solve in, in that effort? Uh, I think the next ridge line to solve is. Uh, every service uses a piece of software to do RMF. So in the Army, they use EMAS. I think in the Navy, they use Xacta. Um, that piece of software is is old and it's legacy, and that's driving all the behaviors around how the services do RMF. Um, I think it's time for a new piece of software to help modernize these behaviors, modernize these practices so it's more like industry. And how meta is it then that that software needs to come out of a DOD software factory? <laughs> yeah, that would be, I, well, I, would, I, I, mean, I would actually like to personally work on that, that project. Well, okay. So question though to you, Aaron, do you think that the DOD is, is the right team to build that software? Like, do you think that we should be taking from more, you know, civilian frameworks and, and using that to design the software? Like, is there something that you think is on the shelf right now that someone's developed that that could drop, replace that? Or do you think this is something that needs to be custom for the DOD and therefore should be built by the DOD? So I, I, I'm, I don't think it should come out of a software factory. There's this whole like build versus buy conundrum that's out there. Um, you know, when I think of service members who are building software, like they need to be focused on the most important problems there is for the service. Those, th- th- those problems that, you know, industry it does, does, doesn't kind of solve at large. Um, you know, it's kind of like, don't, please don't go build your own, your own platform software. Don't yes. go take yeah. Kubernetes and, and, and build <laughs> your do platform. Do right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's something you probably want to rent or, or buy from, you know, one of these companies that, that do that for a living. That's how they make their money. It's, it's and it's differentiated. Uh, I think a, a piece of software that would help do RMF uh, better is is not something I'd, 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 I would focus, you know, uniform members on. I, I think you, you, could, you could probably bring, you know, one of these one of these forward leaning kind of uh, tech firms in to help 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 build that thing. Okay. So the the next question. DOD software, would you characterize that as particularly strong or not particularly strong currently? Um, and why do you think that is, other than probably some of the obvious things that we have discussed thus far? <laughs> you know, the, the day I retired, the day I joined, uh, you know, industry out of DOD, I had more command and control capability on my iPhone than I ever did, uh, you know, as an infantry company commander at war in Afghanistan, it was, it was, it was, it was, it was amazing. You know, I knew all these pieces of software kind of, kind of were out there, but to have it on my, my telephone that replicated on my iMac that replicated in the cloud, wherever device I was on, um, was, was pretty incredible. It's, it's, it's a shame that, you know, with all the importance that our, our services, our, our DOD does, uh, in defending the nation, that they don't have the very best software that that that, that is out there today. Um, I think that it's coming along. Everyone's talking about it. Uh, there's, you know, there there is a bit of change. Um, so I think that the future is bright. It's just in my mind, it's, it's not taking. It's, it's taking way too long to uh, 
to actually affect a lot of the a lot of this change that's happening. And do you think that's a, a byproduct of just the sort of the, this is the way we've always done it mentality, or the very slow rate of change that it takes to move a ship as you know proverbial ship as big as the DoD? Um, like I, I don't know, I, I struggle with this one internally too, Aaron. Like, why is it so hard? I, I've seen large companies make big shifts, maybe not companies as large as the entire DoD and all of that, but. Uh, like, I'm just super interested to hear what you think is some of the root causes of that. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the, I think that the DOD is, is very good at, you know, biting, uh, at building and buying hardware. Um, you know, look at the, 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 new, the new ships that come out of shipyards. Look at the tanks that are coming off the uh, assembly line. Look at these incredible helicopters that are flying around the sky. The, I think that the DOD has like mastered that. The, the problem is, is those processes that are in place to buy, uh, you know, the world's best hardware are totally, totally different uh, than to go acquire or buy a piece of software. Um, you know, you, you kind of want to know what you're designing and building when you're when you're, when you're going to build a ship. Uh, those things take, you know, bending metal is, is is hard. It takes many, many years. You can't go. You can't just go hit the delete button and, and change things like you can with software. Yeah. We, we need to add a door here, push to master. Okay. It's done. Right. <laughs> yeah. So I, I, I think it's just, and things are, things are changing. I, I can see things change. It's just, it's not happened fast enough. I think the, the processes have not changed for how uh, the DOD acquires, builds, buys, build uh, software. So you mentioned having the uniformed service members focusing in on the most relevant problems to the service. So as we kind of pull out of this question that we've brought up here, what the most relevant thing is, what do you, Because and I think you're saying that speed is the worst part, uh, how, how long it takes for us to get through this stuff. What do you think is the place that we take our most talented people and invest? Is it to get the kind of CATO, CRMF part right? Is it getting the people and structure right? Is it getting the balance between hardware, cloud, however you want to look at that right? Or is it a culture thing? Or is it something we haven't even identified yet? Uh, we probably need to start with and focus on something because to your point, if it's just everything, uh, uh, it's mission command. It's kill chains. It's what allows our Department of Defense to deter a conflict. That's the capabilities that uniform folks should be should be focused on. And then using those capabilities to drive the architecture that everyone's moving to for for you know what they call JADC2. Uh, this hybrid cloud world um, where you can build, you know, run your command on-prem, you know, pick up, move, you know, fail up the cloud, uh, get set again, come back on-prem again, move back to the cloud. Uh, yeah, mission command is where, where the focus should be. And for the kind of non-uniformed or, or, or non with this audience, the, the mission command is is what you talked about in the beginning is a, a hyper focus on the end state, right? That that's kind of what you're getting at is we need to make sure we're hyper focused on the thing that we need and what we need to achieve that. Yeah. You know, Google and Microsoft are just some really great products, but they're not the best products when you're planning and executing conflict. Uh, you know, <laughs> next, you know, that, 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 that software allows our services to do what they do best, do what uh, the country kind of has, you know, put the weight on them to do, um, you know, fight and deter conflicts is, is where I, I, I you know, I, I believe we should be focusing our, our uniform talent. So Aaron, you said something there that I want to double click on for a second, because it's very near and dear to my heart uh, as a, you know, Marine officer veteran, and as someone who's worked at Google and now works heavily in the Google space and has tons and tons of friends who work at Amazon and Microsoft and all the other places as well. I love the concept that we want to try to find companies that are really good at doing particular elements of that. And I think that the thing that the Marines or the DOD or whatever you want to call that, that government complex is that they are very good at fighting wars, right? That's what they are good at doing is on, you know, 
bringing stability or putting warheads on foreheads when it comes to that level of the conflict, right? Like those are the things that I agree with you 100% that I want to have happen. And I think that we get into this weird spot where, you know, as we start um, bleeding into some of the more recent technological changes and advantages, right? Like the Jedi contracting services and stuff. And like, is the DOD going to go all in on cloud? You know, this is the topic that John and I and Rich have talked about a dozen times on this cast, right? And and there seems to be this thing where it's like, well, then, okay, all the warfighting capability is now going to be in the cloud. And people take this very black and white approach to that sort of thing. And I, you know, I don't want Amazon, Microsoft, or Google building warfighting software. Do not want, right? That, that, is, that is not what they are good at. But I certainly want them writing container orchestration platforms that I can build warfighting software upon, right? That is what they are good at. And I just... For the listeners at home and for, for everybody else, like, I, I cannot emphatically agree with what Aaron just said here. Like, the DOD needs to focus on the warfighting capabilities, those mission commands, right? The, the things that are going to help on the ground and execute those things. But please don't make uniform service members or people that are supporting the DOD in that concept, like, build a new password management system or, like, try to figure out a better networking technology. Like, pretty please with cherries on top, buy that stuff. Do not build that stuff. So I should take down my proposal for us to write our own military version of Kubernetes? Yes, you should, right? Like, absolutely. Like Milnetis is officially dead. Milnetis should die and should have died long ago. Yes, absolutely. We don't want Milnetis in any way, shape, or form. Just That's such a critical element. When, when we talk about the DoD software factories, you know, I, I sort of asked that question earlier, Aaron, as a plant. You know, it's like, should uniform service members be writing this new risk framework, right? Like, is that what is their best interest? You would talk to a lot of people. I mean, I don't share that. And again, Kyle's opinion here. This is not the opinion of my employer or anybody else. I'm in the Google world. I don't want Google building any software that helps in warfighting, blah, blah, blah. But should they be doing that, right? I, I feel very strongly if there's a risk management piece of software that is out there, just buy it. You can deploy it tomorrow. Done. Like move on, go build warfighting software after that, or use that to build better acquisition cycles through the CRMF. Anyway, I'm on my hearts now and I'm sort of getting into my uh, hot take moment here in a little bit, but uh, I'll stop. Yeah, I can't agree more. <laughs> so Aaron, we've covered a bunch of stuff, but we are getting kind of low on time here. So uh, kind of one last tip over to you. Uh, any last thing you wanted to talk about, or maybe a having worked through all of this for several years, is there anything that you wish people either knew or kind of invested a little bit more in learning? You know, in, in my role, I get to see so many different software efforts, um, you know, ones that, you know, I, I, got, I, got, I have u unique access in, into a lot of our clients. I get to, I get to see a, a ton. I get to see what, you know, what, what folks are buying. I get to see what people are building themselves. I get to go see what's on the next horizon. Um, I can't tell you how many projects just look so cool, but it's like, it, it's, it's like on someone's like laptop uh, on someone's like, you know, Git repo somewhere. And there's, there's just no chance of day of it ever. There, there, there's no chance of the software ever seeing the light of day. Uh, and so what I would, and I, and I do, I, when I recommend how folks kind of grade those efforts on, you know, if folks know what to invest in. Um, I kind of break it down to, into like five kind of kind of key questions. The first thing I you know I ask I, I ask the same things of our development teams because uh, you know not everything is is roses and not everything is, is is great either over here. But the first thing I say, hey, are, are you fully accredited in in production today? Because um, if you think about it, how many early efforts are that th they have no they, they have no idea how to get accredited. Uh, that thing called ATO and RMFs, like they don't even worry about that until eight years on the road. Then they bring in their compliance folks. Yep. Then they go to RMF. Um, and a lot of these efforts, like production, like what the hell is that? I'm just I'm build the thing that someone told me to build. My laptop, right? I just share that URL. It's fine. I have an IP address. It changes every couple of days. Nobody. Does. I, I've had this conversation. <laughs> no, like every before you even start building anything or buying anything, you need to say, "Hey, we're getting accredited." And we're going to production tomorrow uh, because you, 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 you're going to learn so much when you go through that process. You're going to learn so much when you actually get into production and show your software to a real, a real user. Don't, don't, don't wait. You shouldn't be waiting more than a month or two to, to do that. And it's hard, man. It is so yeah. hard in the DOD space. But there's a few of us who have done this re 
repeatedly. So come, come learn and I'll, I'll show you how it's done. But the second question is, is your software fully adopted by mission users? Um, there's a lot of software in the DOD. Uh, there's a lot of software with like no users anymore, but it's still being main, maintained because no one ever asked that question. But well, even one command in the middle of nowhere is using that software, and so it's maintained. Yeah. Or we've already palmed for it. So, <laughs> Yeah, totally. So the goal of any software project is to be adopted, and it shouldn't be like force adopted, like, hey, you need to use this thing. It's literally like, please use this because it's, it's, you know, it's differentiating. Um, you know, when I go out, I, I click on Google Maps and it takes me people. When I need to, need to go, uh, when I get into a new city and, and go to my hotel, I hit Uber. It's, it's, I, en- I enjoy using the, that, that capability. Uh, nothing, it shouldn't be different in the DOD, but you know, are you fully accredited in production? Is your software fully adopted? The third question is like, is your software moving the mission needle? Um, it, it needs to be you know, critical. You need to be changing how business is done. Folks need to uh, see, see value in that software that, that you're building. And then once you, once you get those, those things going, the fourth one is like, how long does it take you to talk to a user, uh, understand what they need, put that in your backlog, build it, and push it back to the production again? Uh, we kind of call this, you know, at a high level cycle time. Uh, but that should be like days or, or you know, no more than a, a, a week or two. You should be able to go find the most next mission critical feature. Uh, figure out what it's going to look like, yep. design it, stick in the backlog, prioritize it, push the production in, in less than a week. Yeah. Prototyping then, an MVP as fast as humanly possible. Like doesn't need to be pretty, just needs to work. Totally. And then the last one is like, can you do this at scale? Um, you know, when you, when you answer those the, yes to those, uh, those five questions, you can do it you know, every week or less, you know, you're, uh, you know, you're cooking with, you're cooking with gas. I love that way, way to really uh, hit the end of the cast with uh, a quick five questions. Beautiful. Uh, on that note, Kyle, hit us with your hot, hot take. I- I'm going to piggyback on things that I've already sort of talked about uh, with Aaron today, but I'm just going to say if you're out there right now and you are a senior officer or someone in leadership position, my ask to you is to listen to what Aaron just said and try to enable as much as possible your uniform service members or your warfighters to help you write software that will change the mission needle to, to use the third question that Aaron just talked about. If you are a mid-level officer, a junior officer, an enlisted person, it doesn't matter if you're, if you're bottom up, if you will, and you have a good idea for software, I'm begging you tell everybody, tell everybody that you can go find John. He's still in uniform. He can talk to you through things. I'm going to ask you to blow his inbox up, right? Go find Aaron. Like go tell people that you have a cool idea for your software so that we can try to get some bottom up improvement on this as well. That's my ask to everybody in the hot take. Don't go write a new password management software. Write something cool that's going to move the mission needle. Kyle, that was beautiful. And I will plus one on that and say it has never been easier to get your idea in front of a GO. So this absolutely can happen. Dear listeners, thank you for joining us. You can connect with us on social media by going to Twitter and following at USMC underscore T-F-P-H-O-E-N-I-X. That's at USMC underscore Task Force Phoenix. Our editor is Sarah Clarkson, and marketing support is provided by Jake Osborne. You can support the cast by going to Apple Podcasts and leaving us a five-star review and accompanying comment. And with that, we are out. I love it.